0: Before we turn to the Bible tonight, I have very, very sad news to pass on to you that little Stephen Little passed away as a result of that uh, thunderbolt that he was caught in. I think we should just pause for a moment to pray for his, his family who will be reeling. it's impossible actually to even imagine what they're feeling right now. Let's pray for them, shall we? Father, we we come to you, we have no words. Uh, In the multitude of speech, sometimes it is just foolishness. We come to you because to whom else can we go? We come to you because you've made us and you've made the life of this little one who is now in your presence. And... uh, As we come to you tonight, our hearts are full for his family, for those who love him and whom he has left. Father, we pray for his mother, that she would recover from her injuries. We pray for them as they come to terms with this news. We pray that you would give them, Lord, extraordinary comfort that you would help them to express the grief that they have, that they would find in your church and among their Christian friends the strength. And may we all do what we can do for them to, to the degree we know them, to be with them through this terrible time. We think of all of our church families on vacation all of them who have set off looking forward to a happy time together as a family. I pray, Lord, that you would please protect them from such circumstances. You are the God of all comfort. You are the Father of mercies. Will you please pour comfort into the hearts of the little family at this time, we pray. Father, we cast ourselves and them upon you, In Jesus' dear and strong name, amen. Well, we're going to turn together to John 18. And though it may be difficult for all of us tonight to focus and concentrate now in the next few minutes on this text of Scripture, it strikes me that maybe in the providence of God, there is something for us to learn even about these terrible circumstances that we've just shared together in this moment that we've had as God's people. I remember growing up every year as it came towards Easter, as a little boy going to church and hearing the Easter story read year in and year out, And I remember in my childlike way wishing that this year Jesus would not be caught and would not be crucified, and that somehow or other the plot would change. And the whole process of Jesus' crucifixion in many ways begins at this point. The physical actions, at least, that led to it begin at the point That we're looking at this evening. You immediately, as you read the story, it's it's recalled here in John chapter 18, realize that you are listening to or reading, as you're doing this evening, an eyewitness account of a tragic event. There are those little details, such as people's names, small Actions are reported that seem incidental and inconsequential as far as the bigger drama is concerned, but they're included in the story without fanfare and with an easy unconsciousness. They're included because they happened as John remembered them. And as John's story reaches its climax in Jesus' death— the story begins to slow down, the details begin to fill out, the focus begins to narrow, the tension in the drama begins to build. We discover that from this point forward, everything that has happened since the beginning of this gospel has been moving towards this point that everything that has occurred has been preparing us for this event. Whoever said it was right when they said that the Gospels are passion narratives with long introductions, that the passion is, in fact, the main part of the drama of the life of Jesus Christ. And no sooner is he introduced to us and as we've been working our way through John's gospel, Jesus has been, been being introduced to us. The profile of the portrait of the Lord has been added to this way and that way until we've, we've gotten this great picture of who Jesus is. And no sooner do we feel we know him than he is snatched away from us. And that snatching away happens beginning here in chapter 18. And we wonder, is this drama that we're reading a tragedy? And what we discover as we read more closely the text is that rather than being a tragedy, this drama will end up in the truest Greek sense of being a comedy because as we see this evening and read this story of his arrest that evening, we find that the focus of the story is not on the authorities coming to capture him. The focus of the story is on Jesus himself. And uh, you can see this as it unpacks. Jesus drives his own destiny. Jesus dismays his enemies. Jesus defends his people, and Jesus defines his mission. First of all, Jesus drives his destiny. At every point in this gospel, Jesus has made the moves that drive the drama. Very often we feel, in our own lives, victim of our own circumstances— We find ourselves swept along by events that we have no control over or being driven towards outcomes we would rather have avoided. But in this gospel, Jesus drives the story. We find him, for example, here in this garden that begins with Jesus himself going back to Jerusalem. Despite the warnings of his friends, despite the obvious hostility of the authorities, he goes back to Jerusalem. He walks into danger in spite of knowing about it. Secondly, he has appeared in public. He has performed a very public miracle just outside the city walls in Bethany, a miracle that has, a, that has attracted much public interest as well as stirring up the determination of the powers that be to have a way with him. John has made it clear in chapter 13, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to depart out of this world to his father. We're told in chapter thirteen twenty-one that he was troubled in spirit, and he testified to his men, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will dis- betray me. And third, we have seen him dispatch the betrayer, Judas, to do what it was in his hardened heart to do. What you are doing, Jesus says to him in chapter 13, do quickly. And so with every action Jesus has taken, we find that he has done so with a clear understanding of the upcoming events that are now about to unfold. He predicted his betrayal, he led his followers out of the safety of the upper room where he had spoken to them, to a place where he had begun to pray. And we read about the prayer in chapter 17. He's now crossed over the Kidron stream out to, out of the city towards the walled garden, a walled garden most likely loaned by a friend, a wealthy friend, for him and his disciples to go to to have time together out of the spotlight. We know that it was a familiar spot. Look at verse 2. Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. It was a favorite meeting spot out of the public gaze, known only to Jesus' followers. And we might have expected that Jesus would avoid arrest, knowing that Judas was going to be the betrayer, that he wouldn't go somewhere that he knew Judas would find him. But here he is deliberately going there. He knew that, Judas knew, this is where he would go. And it's now, publicly, that we discover that Judas has now officially changed sides. Throughout this gospel, wherever he has been mentioned, he's been described as the betrayer. Now we find his betrayal in action. And so in verse 3, Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. You see how John blanks what's gone on since Judas left the upper room. He leaves the other Gospels to fill in the background. They tell us about the deal with the religious leaders. They tell us about the financial arrangements that were made and the plot to identify Jesus with a kiss. But here we're told by John, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. That is, standing with Jesus' enemies. He is now officially on their side. He has moved positions. He is in their side of the camp. He is with Jesus' enemies. He is no longer standing with those who stand with Jesus, who have nailed their colors to the Jesus' mast. He has now abandoned Jesus, and he is now unmasked before our eyes for what he really is. And from this point on, he will no longer have any role to play. This is the end of Judas. This is the last time that John will mention his name The Gospels are not interested, as we are very often, interested in knowing what was going on in his mind or what his motivations were or what the mystery of iniquity in his heart spelt for Judas. The Gospels are not interested in any of that. What matters to John is that from this point on, Judas disappears into the darkness that has overtaken him. The darkness that now fills not only the night in which he meets Jesus there in the garden, but his own soul is captured by the darkness of this world. Jesus had said that. En route to the walled garden, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as my Father has commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. Here's the betrayer coming. He comes with two groups of armed men. There's a band of Roman soldiers and a group of Jewish law enforcement officers. That band of Roman soldiers is a cohort Cohort normally was a a 1,000 men, though in practice it could be as few as 600. It was not uncommon for the Romans to use large numbers of men to deal with a single person. We read, for example, later on the Apostle Paul being guarded by 470 Roman soldiers. Usually the troops were garrisoned in Caesarea by the coast, but they were there in Jerusalem because of talk of uprising among the Jewish population, and there they were stationed in the fortress of Antonia, just northwest of the temple. One thing that strikes me as I read of this, of course, is that it's very difficult to keep nearly a thousand men between the cohort of Roman soldiers and the Jewish law enforcement officers, very hard to keep a crowd like that quiet especially when we're told that they were carrying lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus and his men must have heard the sound of footsteps and seen the light swinging as it came down from the city, down across the brook and up towards them in the garden where they had met. The officers from the chief priests were the primary arresting officers Of the occasion. So here we have the picture. Here are the authorities being led by Judas, one of the twelve, who'd been with him from the beginning, to a known location, armed to the teeth, and Jesus deliberately, verse 4, walking into the trap, knowing, notice that, knowing all that would happen to him. But then the second thing we learn from this story is that Jesus dismays his enemies. There's absolutely no doubt that all of those people, that combined force of Roman and Jewish authorities, were meant to shock and awe Jesus' humble followers. Between them, as I've said, there must be upwards of six to 600 to 1,000 men. They come equipped for a night ambush of a band of criminals. This is a show of force. That's what it is. And they're expecting to do a big job. They're expecting that if Jesus is not where Judas thinks he is, they're going to have to finish the job, which may mean house-to-house searches right through Jerusalem. Passover time in, in Palestine is the time of the full moon. They didn't need the torches to see in the dark. Leading the torches to investigate in people's homes and in dark corners. They were out to search for Jesus. Till dawn, if necessary, they were out to get him. And again, you see, Jesus has taken the initiative. Jesus, knowing that all this would happen to him, came forward. He steps out of the shadows. He steps into the light of those torches. Here is Jesus about to do what he had done throughout the gospel. He is going to manifest his glory, even as he is about to lose his freedom. It comes as no surprise to anybody who's read John's gospel to know that Jesus had supernatural knowledge. It is in the full knowledge of what is going to happen to him. It's in the full knowledge of what is going on with these soldiers coming towards them that he immediately, do you notice, he immediately assumes charge of the situation. He says to them, whom do you seek? Now, he's not asking them a question because he doesn't know the answer. He knows the answer perfectly well. He has been telling the disciples all along that this was going to happen. But his question actually involves a reversal of the facts on the ground. Here he is, from a human point of view, he's at the disadvantage. They have the weapons and the firepower. But here he is, he is taking charge of the situation. He is getting them to think about why they're there. He is getting them to name him, to remember who it is, and we'll see in a moment why, who it is that they have come out to arrest. They know his name. They'd most likely heard him teach. They would not have been able to escape the talk of his miracles and his work. They knew who they were after. Jesus the Nazarene, they say. Referring to Jesus of Nazareth. They meant it probably in a derogatory manner. The Jews, who would be the spokespeople of the arresting crowd would have thought that Nazareth was a despised place, that no Messiah would ever come from Nazareth. Peter puts it in perspective six weeks later when he says to the Jerusalem crowd, Jesus of Nazareth, a man of, who is attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. They knew who they were after, Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 5. And Jesus said to them, I am he. He's not just saying, it's me. Well, it's me you're looking for. In the Greek, the words ego, I me, I am, literally mean I am, I am, repeated. The words are used three times in the context. Verse 5, verse 6. And verse 9, we're obviously meant to notice them. We're obviously asked, meant to ask ourselves the question, why does Jesus use this particular form of speech? In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, these words, ego translate the words nihu in Hebrew. This sentence, I am, is frequently used in the Hebrew and, therefore, in the Greek as a declaration of unique divine identity. You find it in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 32, see now that I, I am, even I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is a self-identifying expression for God. This is how God introduced himself in Exodus 3 to Moses. When Moses says to God, who shall I say sent me? God says to Moses, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. I am that I am. Later on in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, which if you come regularly to 10th, you now know off by heart. The book of Isaiah, chapter 43 and verse 10. It is God who states his purpose that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he, meaning I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and I am forever the same. In chapter 41, I am, I am the Lord, I am he. In chapter 43, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Chapter 46, I am, I am God, and there is none like me. In the Old Testament, there are seven uses of ego, I in the Greek translation, seven times in all, and it serves to make it clear in a very concise way that the one who is speaking is none other than Yahweh. He is the Lord God of Israel. And... In John's gospel, we've noticed this phrase, ego I me, I am, has occurred again and again and again. Where there are seven uses of that expression in the Old Testament, there are seven uses of it in John's gospel. And in fact, in the Old Testament, on the seventh use, there is an emphatic variation in Isaiah chapter 43 and 51, using another expression, anoki, anoki hu, which means I am, I am he. It's a stress of it, an absolute use of it. Here in John's gospel, in John's gospel, there are seven absolute uses of ego I me by Jesus. We saw them. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am, I am. In other words, this language Jesus uses to these men is the language that is familiar to these people, the Jewish speakers to him, the ones who've come to arrest him, backed up by the Romans. They know perfectly well that when Jesus is using this, he is using a self identifying designation used by the God of Israel of himself. I am, I am. And so when they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am, I am it does not escape the understanding of those men who are pushing towards him to arrest him. They know he is claiming absolute authority, that he'd already claimed to be the true bread from heaven, the true vine, the good shepherd, the coming judge of all the earth. And with great deliberation, he is placing himself at this point within the identity of the God of Israel, who sums up his identity by saying, I am he. And when Jesus, notice the text, when Jesus said to them, verse 6, I am, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It was a work of power. Jesus is confronting the powers of darkness. And you need to see the element of the comic here. The authorities had been waiting for this moment for a long time. The, the Jewish authorities had been concocting plans to get him all of the time. They'd been talking about putting him to death from very early on in his ministry. This was their moment. This was their high point. They had Jesus Within their grasp, the fawning crowds of people who, who adored him for his miracles weren't there. It was the darkness. He was there alone with his 12 men, and here they were with a force of Roman soldiers with them. This was their moment. Throughout John's gospel, we've seen the elusiveness Of Jesus, they would go looking for him and they wouldn't find him. They tried to arrest him and he would slip through their hands. They would try, determined to silence him, but he would not be silenced. And every effort, every effort had failed. Every effort. And yet, instead of falling upon him and arresting him, they draw back like dominoes that you've set up and you push one, and they all collapse on each other. You can see the comic picture of these men drawing back and bumping into the men behind them, and they're all falling down like nine pins. Chaos ensues because they're afraid. There is a fear. R.C. Sproul says there were two groups of people terrified that night. There were the disciples terrified at this huge force coming to arrest Jesus. And there was the huge force, terrified for this moment, as the inner glory of Christ is expressed through these words that he uses. And the only person that night who was not afraid is the one who was outnumbered a thousand to one, who stands serene and confident in God. Acting as Moses did when he found himself with the people of Israel with their backs against the Red Sea. Acting like Elijah when he was surrounded by the Syrian army. He stands firm. Judas and the soldiers represent the powers of darkness, and those powers of darkness are still abroad in the world today, beloved. Behind them is the evil one. Jesus said that. Behind Satan was the evil one, the devil. And we learn from this little vignette in the drama that all the hosts of hell, all the machinations of man have met their match in Jesus. Whatever evil lurks in the background of your life, whatever evil is yet to come, we do, we face it, we face it in light of Jesus in this story. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He has said to the Father in chapter 17, you have given him authority over all flesh. Here he demonstrates it. He is not having his life taken from him. He told them that. He is laying it down of himself. And Jesus at this very moment of his arrest, in his great power, dismays his enemies. But I want you to notice thirdly that Jesus defends his people. He did not call for the assistance of angels to come and wipe out the opposition. Once again, having recovered from the startling use of this expression, I am, I am. Once again, they gather themselves together, and they ask him the question, or he asks them the question, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He repeats the question. And then he speaks up for his people. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So If you seek me, let these men go. Do you see? Jesus had no bargaining power here. He's surrounded by overwhelming odds, but he's actually in control of the situation. He orders them to let his people go. Twice he had asked them, Who are you here for? Twice they had replied, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, he says, you've come for me. Let these men go. And he did, he did this. We're told, look at verse 9. He did this to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those you gave me, I have lost not one. We're told this was to fulfill the Word. That is often the Word of Scripture. Here's the Word of Jesus, because the Word of Scripture is the Word of Jesus. The Word of Scripture is the Word of God. It has the authority of God. Why did he speak up for them? Well, we were told earlier in the evening of his arrest in chapter 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. He didn't just it for them before his father, verse chapter 17. He had reported to the father that of all of those the father had given him, he had lost none. He was the good shepherd. The good shepherd cares for the sheep entrusted to him. The good shepherd will give up his own life for the sheep. And here he is acting as the good shepherd. Twice in John's Gospel, He had referred to this keeping of His people. In chapter 6, this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but shall raise it up in the last day. And so when we find Jesus here securing the physical safety of His men, that is meant to be, in the flow of John's gospel, a pointer to the eternal safety and salvation that Jesus, by His arrest and by his death and resurrection will secure for his people he intercedes for them by putting himself between them and their enemies you have me let them go that's why jesus came into the world he came into the world for his own people you read chapter 17 i pray not for the world, but for them that you have given me out of the world, and for their sakes I consecrate, I sanctify myself. He is praying as a priest, preparing himself, himself to be the offering, the sacrifice that will be made. You have me, let them go can I say to you this evening if you're not a christian person there is the very heart of the christian message this is why jesus came into the world he came into the world in order that he might say that for for you and for me you have me let them go he's putting himself in harm's way so that his people might be safe and saved isn't that amazing He is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him. Well, it's at this point, as this part of the story nears its end, that Jesus defines his mission. There's this little interlude here, then Simon Peter. Well, if you've been following the series in John's Gospel, that in itself Just about makes you pause and think, what is Peter going to do next? Because here is a poor man who suffered from foot and mouth disease. He opened his mouth and regularly put his foot in it. And on this occasion, he did his usual. Simon Peter having a sword. Well, that's not good. That is not a good thing. It's being in the wrong place in the wrong time, carrying a handgun when you shouldn't be. And here he is in the midst of this situation, and the authorities are there with him, and, and Peter has a sword, a sword, not just a dagger, not just a dirk, which Scotsmen stick in their, in their, their socks when they're wearing their kilts, a little dagger, and they do that just to show themselves macho because they really are. But <laughs> this, is a, this is a short sword. He's carrying it. And out it comes. <laughs> In front of the authorities. Out it comes. He, you know, Peter, he hasn't really assessed this situation here. They're like there's a thousand of them, maybe as many as that, maybe even if there's only half of that. That's a lot of people, okay? And you've got one short sword Like, what are the odds? He hasn't thought any of this through. Well, that's what Peter did, of course. He never thought things through. But what is Peter actually doing here? Well, for one thing, he is rejecting Jesus' self-confessed determination to humble himself and offer himself as a sacrifice for his people. I mean, Peter confessed. He had confessed him to be the Holy One of God, but he's not willing to let him fall into the hands of his enemies. It all sounds very noble. It sounds just the kind of thing you'd want somebody to do for you, and so on. And why, what Jesus, John is doing here is not so much showing up Peter's failure, nor is he inviting us to, to analyze Peter's psychological makeup, but he's exposing the fact. That once again, to the very end, even Jesus' closest, His nearest and dearest, were trying to stop Him doing what He'd come into the world to do. You remember they tried to stop Him going to Jerusalem. Well, we can't go there. Don't go there. Why do we have to go back there? Don't you know they're going to kill you if you go back there? Constantly, they were doing this trying to keep Jesus from doing what Jesus said he'd come into the world to do. Because to a Jew, a dead Messiah was no Messiah. They didn't want a dead Jesus. They wanted a reprise of that triumphal entry when they come into Jerusalem with Jesus on the donkey, and them behind him, and everybody welcoming him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. That's what they wanted. They want a dead Jesus. Once again, Peter finds himself in the wrong place doing the wrong thing because he found the very idea of Jesus' death unacceptable to him. But Christ will not be panicked. He will not be pressured by our impatience or by Peter's. He will not have his followers behave as if they're an earthly army belonging to an earthly kingdom. Jesus' people may well have to suffer for Jesus, but he will not have them fight for him. His kingdom, as he will explain later to Pilate, is not of this world. He will not have his people bring in his reign by force of arms. There will be vengeance. There will be judgment. There will be a day when God will punish his enemies. And what a dreadful day that will be, but it is not this day. This is the day of salvation. And Jesus spells that out to him. Jesus says to Peter, verse 11, after he's chopped off this, this man's ear, and you notice John tells us he'd done his investigation. He knew the name of the man, the man called Malchus. A little insight into the historicity of the, of the story. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? The father has given me. There you have the key to the whole story. This is why he was here. That's why he walked out to the garden. That's why he sent Judas off. That's why he had introduced himself the way he did. That's why he'd intervened on behalf of his people. He was here to drink the cup. There's an expression with lots of Old Testament baggage with it. It's the cup of the wrath of God. It's the cup of the anger of God against the sins of the world. It's the cup of judgment. He has come to drink that cup, to drink it up, to take it all, to be exposed to the wrath of God that is coming to you and me, because of our sin, the wrath of God revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. He drank it up. He drank it whole. He drank it for you and for me. A man of Nazareth is the son of God and the suffering servant of the Lord that Isaiah had introduced us to. He is not going to the cross as a helpless victim. Indeed, his bare word has dismayed his foes. He had the power to lay down his life and take it again. No one takes it from him. What he's come into the world to do is his will, his own will, the will of his father. He's come into the world out of love for his people and obedience to his father. He will drink this cup and he will drink this cup alone. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. There we have the heart of the gospel. And what are we to do with it? Well, we're to do with it, as we learned this morning, we're to believe it. We're to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this evening you would take your word and especially especially do we pray for Kit and JD that they, as well as we, might take comfort in the fact that Jesus drives our destiny as well as his own. That now as our exalted enthroned king He reigns over all things. And one day, when we are in his presence, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We cast ourselves upon your mercy this evening. In Jesus' strong name, amen.